you know, I think we all feel this human canine connection in a way, all of us who have dogs and how much that could touch your life and does touch my life and I know Don's life. Just taking that relationship into the theater and watching this and then seeing how extraordinary this relationship could be between the dog and the visually impaired person, I think is amazing. But it also is a personal story to anybody who's ever loved a dog or a cat. That's Dana Nachman. She's co-director with Don Hardy of the prize-winning documentary, Pick Up the Litter. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. As a longtime dog lover, it was a no-brainer that I would choose to see Pick of the Litter at AFI's 2018 Documentary Film Festival. The litter in question is one of Labrador retrievers that are bred by Guide Dogs for the Blind, also known as GBD, for the specific purpose of becoming service animals. Filmmakers Dana Nachman and Don Hardy decided to follow a litter through the two-year process from birth to their graduation and assignment to a person who's visually impaired, assuming the dogs make the cut. Not all of them will make it through the rigorous training. And we're with them every step of the way. We watch the pups grow from their time with puppy raisers, who are selfless people like foster parents, caring for the young dogs, only to give them back to GDB after a year for the dog's more intensive training. There we see how a guide dog is trained, what's expected of him or her, the extraordinary skill of the trainer and the dog, and the life-changing difference these dogs will make in the lives of visually impaired people. This is the fourth documentary Dana Nachman and Don Hardy have co-directed together. And when I spoke with them, I wanted to know how they chose this topic. Guide Dogs for the Blind is an organization we've known about for a while in our previous career as journalists. We worked here in the San Francisco Bay Area and did a couple of short stories on on the organization that's based in Marin County, so it's you know, close to where we uh, were working. And so we'd go up there and, and cover them. We're big dog people, so we loved what they did. And we thought back then, and this is in 2003, 2004 era, we thought they'd make for a good documentary, but we weren't there in our careers yet and didn't quite know how to do it, I guess. And then when we went out on our own to make documentaries, it was a project that was forgotten about a little bit. It was just one of those ideas that gets left in the dust. Until we were at a film festival with another project, and, it, and the idea came up, and it's, it was something that Dana's mom, who's a print journalist in uh, the New York area, had done a similar series about this following a group of puppies. And we're like, wow, that could be a great way to crack the code on this and make an interesting documentary. Do you mind just walking us very quickly through all the steps these dogs have to go through before they become certified as guide dogs for the blind? Sure. They are born um, at Guide Dogs for the Blind campus, and they get held and petted every day and loved by volunteers. What a hard volunteer job that is. (laughs) They stay for about two months. Then they go out to puppy raiser families, and they stay there for about 12 to 16 months, where they learn all the fundamentals of dog training, sit, stay, and much beyond that. Um, These are the best behaved dogs you've ever seen. And then they go back to the Guide Dogs for the Blind campus where they get trained for eight to 10 weeks, and each week they're cut if they don't perform well. And then they have two extra weeks where they're matched with visually impaired or blind people, and then they go off to meet with their people, um, and they get trained together for a time, I think, was it a couple weeks? 
and then um, and then if all goes well, they graduate. Dogs who don't make the cut or are career changed, as GDB calls it, are either adopted or most likely sent to other organizations as service dogs because GDB is very particular in the way it trains its dogs. And you demonstrate this and the importance of it in the prologue to the film. Tell me about the prologue. Sure. So we set up the um, the film with about a minute of testimonials from visually impaired and blind people about how their dogs save their lives. It was a very bright and sunny day. We were just walking along on the sidewalk. I was crossing an intersection. This flash of something came within three feet of me. He wouldn't budge. And I said, Bryson, let's go. Satchel pulled me back. Donovan pulled me back. I was literally right at the edge of a very dark stairway. This car just overshot the intersection, and the car never stopped, never had any idea that we had been there. Bryson disobeyed me to protect me. That's the end result. All these things, these cute dogs are going to be born in a second, and you're going to see these, these fluff balls. <laughs> but in the end, they hold people's lives in their hands. And it's a very, I mean, people, a lot of people have told me they cry at the first minute. And I was like, okay, good, then I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, it's working <laughs> if you're crying in the prologue. I did. But I also thought it was really smart because it, it sets out, this is what's at stake. That was our total yeah. intention. Yeah. And because that is the most amazing thing, and I think the thing that got both Don and I when we even you know, even when we didn't know the word, but these dogs, they, they study this study, dog study, I don't know, they train <laughs> in this concept called uh, intelligent disobedience, where they're trained to obey pretty much 100% of the time until maybe in their careers, there'll be one moment where they have to disobey their owner. So the owner, the blind person will say, go forward, go left, go right, halt, because they know they've done a lot of mobility training, they know where they're going, they just need somebody to help them get them there, a dog to get them there. And so there might be one time in their lives or several times in their lives where they are disoriented and they're going to walk into a train track or they're going to walk across a street when they shouldn't. And this dog has to know that very second to disobey. And that's what really sets these dogs apart from any other dog. And we wanted to, you know, we wanted to show those stakes right off the bat. Yeah. You chose to follow one litter of dogs basically from birth to graduation. Fingers crossed that they make it. (laughs) Yes, we did it all. (laughs) That was a risk because oh God, yeah. suppose <laughs> nobody graduated. I mean, suppose all the dogs got cut. Then where would you have been? We're just we're kind of idiotic. Like we, <laughs> we don't know what we were doing. Did you it, have a plan B? Well, I mean, I think we told ourselves that it would be fine because they would go off to other organizations if they didn't make the cut of guide dogs. And we were equally worried, I think, that none would make it and all of them would make it because what if they were all perfect? That would be kind of an, a boring 90 minutes. So we were worried in general, but we kind of just tried to keep that at bay and continue on. There were a couple of sleepless nights, but <laughs> all in all, it was, it was okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a perfect world, we would have watched the whole process for one round with a, a litter of puppies and then probably gone back and determined, well, we need to follow three litters from the beginning and figure out the one with the best chance for success. But we, we didn't do that. We, <laughs> we actually asked them for a litter that uh, would maybe be born in August or September. And turned out our litter was born in June, which was a, an incredibly inconvenient time for us. But <laughs> <laughs> We had two movies coming out in, in June of 2015. And uh, they said, you know, we have this perfect litter we think is going to be great. Can you come up on Tuesday? And we're like, all right. And we scrambled a bit. <laughs> yeah, we scrambled and we, we did it. I, 
you had made other films and then you had talked about this idea that you had been kicking around for a while. How did you even begin? How did you approach the organization and then choose the appropriate subjects? I started the research and I reached out. We live in the San Francisco Bay Area and we wanted it to be as local as possible. So we reached out to, I think, three or four service dog organizations. We had worked with Guide Dogs for the Blind before, but we were just trying to kind of canvas around and see what the different options were. And in the end, we did choose Guide Dogs for the Blind because they had a great infrastructure because it was kind of chaotic to plan this two years of shooting. You know, we have puppies. They're all going to different places. They're all doing different things. It's like having five main characters who can't speak for themselves or make their own decisions. And we needed an organization that was going to have a good infrastructure. And so that's why we chose Guide Dogs for the Blind. Did they then introduce you to puppy raisers and to possible recipients for the dogs? Yeah, they did a lot to help us get this thing going, and probably the greatest of which was trust right off the beginning. And they, they'd seen our previous work, and they gave us amazing access. And that's truly what makes, I think, makes this documentary so special, is we, we show it from beginning to end. And they, they do a lot of planning along the way and look at what dogs could be paired with what people, and there's a waiting list of, of people waiting for dogs. So all through it, they, they helped us find the right puppy raisers and then ultimately find the right visually impaired people that would work well with our dogs that make it that far to get to the point of being paired. So it ended up being a lot of communication with them and them being very willing to just allow us in. And, uh, yeah, I can't thank them enough for that. The access was unbelievable. Um, and, I mean, they did casting, really, for us, which was amazing. They were very good casting agents. And it was the, <laughs> this was the first time that they ever participated in a film. So they did a great job on that. They found the right puppy raisers. They found the right people to get the dogs in the end. And, we, you know, we were so happy. Yeah, and even the, the right litter from the very beginning. They really they thought it through. And they can look, look at the history of the mom and the dad and their success rates and... Yeah, I think we got very lucky. Those dogs have so many human helpers along the way. <laughs> yeah. And that also meant that all of those people had to let you in as well. Was there any pushback is the wrong word because I don't quite mean anything that strong, but boundaries set by either GDB or any of the razors, because you were actually in their homes. <laughs> yeah, I assume, and actually we've never asked them this, we should ask them, they only brought people to us that were okay with being filmed. So we did not have any pushback. I mean, some we had to do a lot of hand-holding, like, hey, when something happens, we need to know about it before it happens. You know, But that happens with any documentary where you have to explain that we really need to be there when, when things are authentically being decided rather than after the fact. And that happens, I think, in most of the films that we've worked on. It just takes some some training on on what documentary filmmaking needs, you know. But And I'm sure they got frustrated with us. I mean, we are <laughs> annoying. It was the rainiest season ever in San Francisco Bay Area, and we had to walk around in the rain a lot and ask them to, to do it longer and more. So I'm sure it was frustrating, but they all treated us very nicely. Yeah, and I think that everybody along the way believes so deeply in the mission of Guide Dogs for the Blind that they're, here comes these couple of goofballs with cameras that want to try to tell that story. And they embraced it. Finally, somebody's going to be able to show on film what I've been saying all along. And they're going to be, we're going to be able to be able to say, see, look, I'm not nuts for standing out in the rain with my dog and for the, you know, bringing these little puppies in and then having to give them back, you know, and going through all of those emotions. So I think everybody just embraced it for that reason. Right. It's a passion project for everybody. Yeah. Right. 
other than filming a litter from birth to graduation, did you have any other plans about how you were going to shape the story? Not really. Um, that It was such <laughs> an interesting kind of narrative structure. I think our biggest challenge was how to pare it down. So we, sh- we way overshot. I mean, we shot 120 days at like four hours a day. So it was a lot of hours. I mean, how do you turn the camera off on a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and and you don't know, especially when they get back for the main training back at, at the guide dog's campus, you don't know when those little moments are going to occur when a dog either does really great or does something wrong. So you just have to keep shooting. And <laughs> there were a lot of moments where we were, you know, uh, talking on the phone as we were making the drive up there for another day of shooting where we were wondering, like, when are, when do we stop? When are we done shooting? <laughs> but I think you just have to go through that process and document it all. Did the puppy raisers all live in the Bay Area? No, no unfortunately, they, they did not. And we, we, that was something we did not anticipate. We thought that all of them would be in the Bay Area. And then it turned out that I think guide dogs wanted to showcase that they go all over the West Coast, which we did not anticipate. So one of the dogs was in Seattle area, one was in Portland, one was in L.A., and two were in the Bay Area. Oh, that was a lot of logistics. And, of course, you wanted to be there when a razor got a phone call about whether their puppy was going to make the cut. Yes, it made it somewhat difficult. And the funniest part was, we don't want to give away too many spoilers, but, but one of the dogs who was in another city, who shall remain nameless, was constantly on the verge of being cut. And so we were like, how many more times? He better get cut this time because we kept going up there, you know, thinking he was going to be cut. And then one of us would go and then the other one would be like, wait, did it happen? And be like, nope. <laughs> did you interact at all with the dogs? Well, Don has a favorite dog and I have a favorite dog. Um, and, and I have a favorite dog. Oh, we always ask people, which is yours? Phil. <laughs> That's, Team Phil that's all the Don. way. Oh, so we like to have a fight on social media if you want to join our fight. Um, so we write, I'm Team Patriot, personally. You know, I could go back and forth. But I, it was it was Phil, and then I really like Primrose a lot. Yeah. She's so pretty. Yeah, yeah. she Primrose, puppy raiser, is outside of Seattle. And I, I made that trip a lot and just spent great time with them. They're a wonderful family. And seeing Primrose grow and yeah she's very very sweet dog and then phil of course how do you not like a dog named phil (laughs) exactly (laughs) (laughs) but they were all you know five wonderful dogs that we bonded with we were there right from the beginning with them and and they certainly knew us through and still do when we you know we've been out screening the film a bit and a few of the dogs have come to screenings and so we get to catch up and and then we stay in touch with the people that have them now as well and do our check-ins Yeah, I was also going to ask you about your interaction with the human subjects as opposed to the canine ones. You know, I think one thing that maybe makes our films a little different is is we do a lot of the work. So it's generally, you know, me with a camera or on this one, Dana and I both had cameras in our hands a lot. But it's it's really just the two of us for a lot of the filming. So the people get to know us well and, and the dogs get to know us well. Now, how did you two begin working together? We, it was fate. <laughs> it was fate. We started working. Our very first thing we did was a, a story on the news about female firefighters training uh, for NBC. And we just got assigned. I was a special projects producer, and they would just assign me different camera people every day. And we got assigned. It Was, was it your first day of work? Or No, but I think you kind of had this other guy named Brad locked down. And Brad <laughs> called in sick, so I got, I got thrown into the big leagues. And, and we went out and filmed it and just kind of bonded that day. Yeah, and started talking about documentaries. And because I had a very coveted job where I did special projects, so I did longer form. And I think I had just been assigned 
my first documentary on um, the Bay Area victims of 9-11. This was 2002. And so Don's like, oh, I've always wanted to make documentaries. I'm like, okay, well, let's do it. And so that was our first project. And then we did three others, I think, for television yeah, before we like went that. independent. And now we've done what we're on our sixth and seventh features. Yeah. Tell me what made you take the leap to documentary filmmaking. I mean, obviously, it had to be a decision you really, really to thought get rich out. And famous, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, but other than the, other but than the obvious one, <laughs> we quit at different times. Like, so the, our first two films, independent films, we did while we still had our day jobs at NBC, and that just seemed practical. So we did them on our credit cards. Um, we did them with our vacation days. And so that was just more practical, like having the day job, having the insurance, while we kind of saw if it was viable. We're never sure if it's really vi- it's viable. <laughs> viable, but over time, something kind of had to give. Um, we had full-time jobs. We were making feature films. I had three kids, you know, so we had to just decide. And so Don, I think, left before I did, maybe a year or two. Yeah, I left when we were deep in editing on our first feature, Witch Hunt. I just couldn't do both. I had a friend who offered me a part-time gig doing videos for a water district, and <laughs> that gave me a, an opportunity to leave NBC and uh, be able to edit the film, and and after that, just kept going. Now, how do you two divide up the work? It's kind of morphed a little yeah, bit over definitely. the years, but it started out that because um, my job was as a producer and Don's was as a, as a shooter editor at NBC, so that we, we followed those lines for a long time, and still mostly do. But as technology's changed. When I used to write the film, I used to write it on paper. Now I write the films as like a first very rough shot edit in Premiere so that that it just skips a step for Don. And so that's changed a little bit. So I'll put together a very rudimentary edit and then he makes it look beautiful. Yeah. And in generally, Dana does more of the, the setup, like f- the first couple of rounds of calls. Well, maybe I do more on the post-production side. And it just it's found its way over the years and... Um, as the films continue to grow and more people come into the mix here and there, the roles don't change all that much. <laughs> they don't. I think the only difference now is we're not so set in our roles yeah. that we could, like, I excel at, at parts of it and Don excels at parts of it, but we can kind of cover each other now more than probably we could have at first. How long was the first cut of the film? Because editing that had to have been a bear. I don't remember exactly how long the first cut was. We're pretty, like, because of our news background, we're pretty judicious with editing. But I do remember that the first cut that I did before I gave it to Don of the training section, which is the last two months, was, if I remember correctly, 90 minutes. Yeah. And the whole film itself now is 80 minutes. So it was just the worst, like 90 minutes. And then my mom watched a little bit. She's like, I don't really understand what's happening. <laughs> like, it just wasn't wasn't very good. Yeah, we, we also brought in a an editor, like a supervising editor on this, a guy named Doug Blush, who's worked on a million different documentaries over the years. And when we thought we had a good, I think it was like a 95-minute cut, yep. and we sent it to Doug, and, and his first response was like, it's pretty good, but take 10 minutes out of it. And we were aghast. One one note I remember from Doug that, that always makes me laugh is the training stuff when we go back to the main campus there that Dana mentioned, like the first cut that she did was 90 minutes, and probably as it laid in the movie, it was probably... 45, 50 minutes, I would say. When we sent it to Doug, he's like, yeah, so about the training, um, at a certain point, man, it's just dogs walking. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's just really made me laugh. Like, no, you're not catching the subtlety of the dog looking in this direction or doing this. He's like, no, it's just dogs walking. So it really made us truncate that to just get it down to the best moments. And I think it was a smart decision. Let's get down to the other nitty gritty. How did you finance this film? 
We were lucky enough to have one investor uh, who's an executive producer of ours. He invested in the film before this, That Kid Begins, and that sold and, and made him some money, and so he wanted to do it again. We got very lucky. Yeah, very fortunate place to be, <laughs> having having somebody that just believes in you and in your work and is willing to uh, to help you get it done quickly, as quickly as you can. So Dana and Don, you you imagine the film. In this case, you got funding for the film. You shoot the film. You edit the film. You put the film together and re put it together, and you have a finished product. But then the fun begins. You have to get the film distributed. Yep. <laughs> the stressful. Yeah, it's, fu- it's funny to hear you say that because a lot of people think when you make it, when you're done, it's like, well, it's done. And it's not even close to done. That's when the, the, the other job begins. Yeah. And I'd like, I'd like you both to talk about that other job. So what's the next step then? So um, the way we've done it in all of our films, which maybe one day in the future we won't have to do it this way, but is we go to film festivals or we try. Oh, um, so many people do. Yeah. Knock on wood. Yeah. We've been fortunate enough to get our films to premiere at, at good festivals. Um, but that's very stressful. I mean, really, really stressful. So we last year got it into the Slamdance Film Festival, and it got bought within 48 hours of it premiering there. So that is the absolute best case scenario. It's not lost on us about yeah, how, how great how that was. How fortunate we are. And and just grateful to a festival like Slam Dance for taking us, for believing in us and giving us the opening night slot. It just was a great place for us to be. And, you know, Slam Dance, I don't know how much the listeners know about it, but Slam Dance runs concurrently with Sundance. So the entire independent film world is descending on Park City, Utah at the same time. And Slam Dance, if you can get the distributors to walk up the hill, is what they say, because it all happens in one hotel there, uh, you have a good chance of selling your film. And, and really, we've always tried to approach this as a business. Yes, we want to tell great stories that connect with audiences. But if you can't get people to see it, then we don't make movies just to show them to friends and family. And <laughs> Our moms really like them, though. Yeah, my mom thinks I'm the best filmmaker ever. <laughs> <laughs> but but we, we want audiences to see them. And that means film festivals uh, give you a great, great opportunity to get your work out there. We've had a great festival run. We've won a bunch of audience awards. And that all helps. And as Dana mentioned, we were fortunate to sell like right out of the gate to IFC Films. So big shout out for IFC Films and them believing in us and believing in the power of documentary films in in theaters. And that's where we're headed on August 31st in New York and L.A. and then goes out from there. It's great to have a a well-regarded company like IFC who believes in us and and wants to wants to get the film out there to as many people as possible. It's just a, a super cool time. They so keep sending us shots of their dogs with pick of the litter bandanas <laughs> on them. All, oh, this is what we get in our inbox every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my final question is, what do you want people to take away from this film when they see it? Um, I think a few things. First, I think the thing that, that touches me most is, you know, I think we all feel this human canine connection in a way, all of us who have dogs and how much that could touch your life and does touch our, touch my life and I know Don's life and probably a lot of people. In my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think just taking that relationship into the theater and watching this and then seeing how extraordinary this relationship could be between the dog and the visually impaired person I think is amazing. But it also is a personal story to anybody who's ever loved a dog or a cat, and, and I love that. Yeah, I certainly would agree with that and just – Maybe, you know, as people walk down the street and you see guide dogs in training or guide dogs that are on the job working with a visually impaired person, realize what a, what a special 
animal that is and what a special bond they have with the, their person. And just, you know, acknowledge it. Uh, I know a lot of people say, you know, the dogs aren't having fun. I mean, these dogs are well-loved dogs. They are not just transportation devices. They are part of the family for these folks. And, uh, and yeah, just think about that when you see them on the street. That was Dana Nachman and Don Hardy. They co-directed the documentary, Pick of the Litter. The film opens in New York and L.A. on August 31st and begins running nationwide in September. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts. And you can leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.